0: Good morning, good day, or good evening, and welcome to 54 Lights. My name is Kandwani Mwase, and the next episode is the Breakfast of Champions, featuring my conversation with Jefferson Darrell. Jefferson is an entrepreneur, an activist, and a leader in the march towards genuine diversity. His organization, aptly called Breakfast Culture, is a boutique agency that specializes in bulk marketing. Now, woke marketing is a phenomenon that he's coined to describe marketing that's mindful. I'll let him elaborate on that. He's leading the charge online in his community, and in boardrooms across Canada. As you'll soon hear, he does it all with a lens that's focused on institutionalizing change, real change. Here, in part, is my conversation with Jefferson.
1: So my full name is Jefferson Otis Darrell. Um, I was born here in Toronto, but my family emigrated from Bermuda to Toronto. My father came here when he was 11 years old. My mother came here when she was in her early 20s. Um, She was amongst the first black teachers uh, in the city of Toronto, actually. Her older sister um, was the first black teacher here in the city of Toronto. So in terms of my name, I know officially I was given the name Jefferson Um, because every great Black person was to be given the name of a president of the United States. (laughs) We can unpack that if you like, but that's another story. (laughs) I was given the name Otis for soul, because I was named after Otis Redding. Daryl is a big prominent name, like it's a popular name, it's a Bermudian name. Like Daryl, my mother is from the Carries in Bermuda, Um, uh, Carrie Harris Stevens. Um, and then my my dad's side, it's the Darrels and the Richardsons. So like there's islands named after Daryl and Bermuda and whatnot. So it's a big Bermudian name. Um, in terms of the story behind my name, so I've been told, so I was born in August and everyone gathered around and called it the homestead where my grandparents had a home at the time. They lived up at Young and what is now Young and Lawrence, but when they moved there, it was literally the outskirts of the city of Toronto. Young Street was a dirt road. The subway had stopped at Eglinton. Actually, it's a cute story how my parents met. so as I said, my dad immigrated here when he was eleven, so he basically grew up in Canada Bermuda as a child. My mom wasn't able to go back, but her let's I get this right her sister, her new sister in-law was cousins with my dad's mother, so my grandmother and she had just said to my mother there's you know My cousin lives in Toronto, Bermudian family. You can't make it home for Christmas. Go visit them. Tell them I sent you. So my mother went. My dad was very introverted, a little shy and introverted. I'm told he saw her um, at Christmas, like at this dinner. And, you know, being a young man, like he would just, you know, not really get dressed up or anything, but apparently he went and got all dressed up, put on a tie, came down for dinner and his sisters and brothers like, Woodrow, why are you all dressed up? He's like, shh, shh. All this stuff. And started courting her, courting my mother. That's how this all happened in terms of them getting together. So then when my mother was um I was the second child of an older sister, and my parents had a deal. Um, for the second child, if it was a boy, my dad could name him. If it was a girl, my mother could name him. Wow. So my mother loved the name Wendy Lee, not a fan, so I'm glad I was a boy. Just like, uh, not a fan. I mean, no offense to Wendy's out there. Um, just not a fan of Wendy Lee, personally. <laughs> um, whereas my dad, he had like, my mom had nine siblings. My dad had seven siblings, well, in total for both. And my dad held me up and said, you know, this is my firstborn son. She has all his siblings, his seven siblings, and everything. It's my job to name him. Mm-hmm. So he said, you know, what shall we call him? And all my all his brothers and sisters submitted all these names like Jefferson, Washington. Apparently, Bubba was on the list. Thank God that didn't happen. Wow. Um, okay. Otis, all of this stuff. And it was a summertime. I was born in August. So it was a summertime. And I guess I'm going to be stereotypical here, like black folk do. There was watermelon at this family picnic. And they had a watermelon seed spitting contest. And basically, I think it was my aunt Sandra who suggested Jefferson. And she won this contest. So Jefferson became the first name. <laughs> I think it was my Uncle Brian who suggested Otis. He came in second. he so second place? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and then according to Brian, he actually rated all the different names in terms of the order. And he's like, my full name is, and there's like seven different names in there. For each for one of all the siblings. But my parents only picked the first two. Oh, that's... And actually, that's how I got my name. Not sure oh, if it's that's true, too funny. It. It's a good story yeah too bad uh, too bad your aunt wasn't the one who said "bubba
2: otherwise it would um, would have been actually I'm happy about that <laughs> <laughs> so so can you tell me you you obviously or you seem to have a really close relationship with your family, um yeah. your aunts, your uncles, and all
1: that um are they in Toronto are they in bermuda uh, um that's my father's side of the family. So in terms of my overall family, both mothers and father, maternal, paternal, um, I have family, I have a lot of family in Toronto. My core family is in Toronto right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I have family in Bermuda still. I have family in the United States. I have family in the UK. Oh, okay. Oh, so those are sort of the areas where, and I'm by that, I'm talking like first cousins, aunts and uncles. So okay. there's still a strong contingent in Bermuda on my Mom's side, there's, um, unfortunately, there's only four less left. Um, there were three boys and six girls. We just lost the youngest boy um, during COVID, mm-hmm. not from COVID. Um, and then on my dad's side, there was, what, two girls, five boys. There's four, one, two, three left wow. on my dad's side. Uh, my father passed away a few
2: years ago. So. Oh, wow. Big family, big family. My yeah, condolences on both, your... both sides. Yeah, my, my condolences on both your um, your your cousin who recently passed and your and your father as well. I know those. I was actually recently passed.
1: Oh, geez. And it's again funny story there. So he was my mother's youngest brother. Mm-hmm. There's years between them, and this is maybe about I think it was about four years ago. We brought my dad down to Bermuda to um, put his ashes in the family tomb there, and. He and my mother, he drive like most people, I don't know if you're familiar with the island of Bermuda. I'm um, right. not sure what the law is today, but I know at one point the law was, just because it's such a small island, um, one car per family, just to, you know, cut yeah. back on traffic and everything. It's a tiny little island. However, to get around that, if you were also a cab driver, you could, that's how you get a second car. Hmm. So just everybody, I don't care what you did, just <laughs> everybody was a part-time cab driver to get a second car. So, our Uncle was a cab driver, and we were down there. He was giving us another driving tour, and it was funny because he and my mother were sitting in the front. Um, he was one of those big um, SUV-type cabs, I guess, with three, um,
2: uh, three rows. Road. Yeah, three rows. So,
1: roads. my sister and I were in the middle, and then my sister's my niece, Kiana. She was in the back seat, like the very back third row. And we were watching my what is it? My mother and her brother just interact, and they were like, you know, in the eighties and everything. My mother's ninety now. And they are interacting and they were kind of being a little, you know, a little shady, a little catty, a little gossipy, and like big sister, little brother. And even though they were like seniors. Yeah, yeah. But they are watching this and we are like, oh my God, it's like looking at a mirror. It was just like the two of us. Like when we're together, we're very, very close. Um, she's a really good friend for me in addition to a sister. And I remember an example of that is I remember my mother said to me once, you know, well, if I tell you something, you can't tell your sister. And I said, Mom, you know how close Cheryl, Cheryl and I are? Yeah, don't tell me. <laughs> and don't tell me, exactly. And she's like, okay, fine, you can tell her because like we talk about everything. Yeah. I'm um, very close that way. I'm very fortunate um, with her and I love her dearly. And um, it was interesting because we just like, wow. So we come by this honestly because it was <laughs> like looking in a mirror, the way they were interacting with each other. Um, from a from a cultural
2: perspective then, do you do you associate yourself as... Like if I were to, if I were to say put a label on yourself, and I hate this I hate this question, but I love this question because I think it's it forces people in a box, and I don't think people should be put in a box. But I'm going to do it anyways. What culture would you say you associate most with? Um,
1: that's a difficult question to ask because I mean, I, I so I I personally I identify as Canadian of Bermudian descent. But that aside, I mean, people will often ask me, oh, where are you from? And my answer adjusts depending upon who's asking. Because I find if it's someone from the dominant group, it's like, where are you from? I'm like, oh, I'm Canadian. Well, no, I mean, where are you from? Where were you born? In Canada. In Canada. <laughs> I don't know, but like, where were you born? Um, Toronto. You know, yeah. Toronto, St. Michael's Hospital, like... That's where I was born. It's like, well, you know what I mean. I'm like, Mm -hmm. no, you're asking me where I was born. I am telling you. I have been thinking about this a lot in terms of identity politics, nationalities, and how we view, and again, I'm looking very, and I'm looking at Turtle Island, if you will, North America. And I find in North America and Canada and the US, we often, again, broad brushstroke here, we often view Americans, Canadians as part of that dominant group, if you will. We don't necessarily see, you know, Canadians or as Americans as racialized. I don't know how else to put it. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, very broad brushstroke. I understand that I'm using a very broad brushstroke here. It's not every such um, scenario as it were. No, for Now sure. that said, because of that, I find the way we think of things in terms of canada and i mean and i'll be really honest and this is me on my own journey i'm catching myself thinking this as well as in is that thinking white or is that thinking canadian if you follow my where i'm going yeah. with this yeah um and when i say white i shouldn't say white actually i mean that dominant group well i mean white i mean that is the dominant group right so that i that's fair, fair, to fair point yeah, um fair point it's fair to say um But again and look at me and this is the scary part and which and actually that's an excellent example of my point right there in terms of me being very canadian in my thinking like i immediately wanted to adjust my behavior for the comfort of the dominant group right like and it's funny and for me and again we're all on our own journeys and that's something i notice that again and which i'm going to be blunt speaks to my being canadian frankly right because i was educated or what I often say now is indoctrinated into a way of thinking in terms of a system and the whole bit. I'd say about for me, I'd say about 15 years ago, I started on a journey to decolonize my mind. I've been so ingrained to adjust my behavior for the comfort of the dominant group, white people,
2: mm-hmm. as a black man.
1: I've, it's been ingrained in me to adjust my behavior for the comfort of the dominant group. I mean, heterosexuals in this point. Yeah, yeah. And I'm trying to live my life more authentically now to be unapologetically black and unapologetically gay. Mm -hmm. And those are just two aspects of who I am, big aspects, and they are intertwined. And I mean, yeah, I don't know what else to say from that standpoint, and where where I was going with all of this though is in terms of identity politics, i still catch myself thinking of canadian as being well frankly white here's the tea why am i thinking that like i'm canadian but i'm still catching myself thinking that sometimes and i've been looking at my circle of friends like i have um i have friends i mean my friends are right across the board i mean i have Straight friends, gay friends, like black friends, white friends, you know, Asian friends, South Asian friends, et cetera, et cetera. When I think of my black friends in particular, I personally use the phrase, and I know a lot of people in Canada typically, we use the phrase ACB communities, African, Caribbean, and black. Mm -hmm. Because it's a diaspora, and I mean, I find a lot of times people look at black as just Caribbean or frankly, jamaican a lot yeah. of time yeah yeah it's a massive island and it's interesting because i find for a lot of people canadians if you will that is what black meant to them yeah and then when they hear bermuda or other islands like if you name an island again and, and frankly and, and that's the other piece of it too is i'm only looking at this through a caribbean lens like i have a friend um recently he's um somalian And he was saying that he doesn't often feel welcome in black spaces in Canada. And I said, what do you mean by that? He said, well, black in Canada inevitably means Caribbean, typically, and it often means Christian. He's like, whereas I'm from the continent. And I'm Muslim. Muslim." Because again, and I speak back to my education or my indoctrination, if you will, in terms of what does Canada mean? My last boyfriend, Eddie, he was originally from Nigeria. And I remember when we were talking, one of the reasons why we first connected, actually, and we were just having a discussion around race relations, and he left Nigeria um, to go to the UK. It's not easy to be gay in Nigeria. And I remember he he said to me, and this was very poignant, he said the first time he realized he was black, air quotes here, (laughs) was when he left Nigeria. (laughs) And I was like, wow, I mean, that was interesting. I mean, we can unpack that if you like, but think about that for a minute. And again, which speaks to you know race being a construct, if you will.
2: Yeah, it's really funny that you said. I love all that you said, and it's really it's complex, right? Um, and that's that's at the at the heart of the question is it is complex. It's layered, and um, it's funny that you were just talking about Eddie because, you know, I come from I look at the world through my lens, right, my very narrow lens, and my experience has been of a African um, youth who came over here when I was relatively young. But I had the same uh, uh, concept as Eddie in that I only sort of understood color when I came here, and I was like, "Oh, I, 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 I guess I'm black." You know, there wasn't. It, I just didn't really um, conceptualize color until arriving here. To be, to be frank, um, but you, you said a lot in there, and I think what, what's really, really interesting about when I speak to you, so both today and in the in the past conversations we've had, is your command of language, your appreciation of um, the sensitivities and the complexities of different cultures. And you are trying to be mindful of them. And I don't know if that came from your, you know, you said 15 years ago, you went to decolonize your mind. I don't know when that journey started for you. But I guess my question is, how do you uh, and maybe people from the audience also, how do they go through that process of understanding language and understanding the nuances to be more
1: respectful? When I say 15 years ago, I would say that was a conscious effort mm-hmm. to make that change. Okay. But frankly, I'd say for me, this probably started almost through my childhood. I mean, when I say that is in the neighborhood I grew up in, Albeit we were there was one other black family in my neighborhood. I grew had a very, I would say a very idyllic childhood. Mm-hmm. Um overall. I mean there are stories around in you know around racism and whatnot that I could get into if you like. Um but looking at the positive side of things, um there was one other black family, happened to be a Jamaican family, or whatever. Um Denise, who's one of my friends, black. Probably in just in terms of the neighbors, she was probably the only other Black family in my, not probably was, the only other Black family. And I'm talking my little, I I grew up in a little crescent. Yeah. North York. Um, Yeah, yeah, exactly. There were a lot of other families there, um, quite mixed in terms of, I would say nationality backgrounds, I suppose. Like there was Jamaican, there was Jewish, there was um, Croatian, I want to say, Italian, Hungarian, not many from the East or South Asian, at least in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. There was more of that in the school. So I was exposed to a number of different cultures, if you will, as a child, Mm. um, just sort of growing up. But then I also remember, and I'm dating myself here, in high school, um, there was this, um, years ago, I don't think it happens anymore, there's something called caravan that used to happen around June, sort of the end of um, the school year. Mm -hmm. It was all over the city of Toronto, all the different um, cultural centers would open up their doors and they would have, um, you know, food, entertainment, shops all around from different countries and cultures. And to the diversity, I would say, of Toronto from that perspective. And one of my best friends from high school, uh, Teresa Sinelli, she and I used to go to caravan every year. And like we just, it was just something we did and we enjoyed it and we were like, you know, we hit like, you know, um, all the different sort of, not just, obviously not just, there are a lot of European obviously, but we go to a lot of the sort of, you know, African and we go to a lot of the Asian and just very different cultures all over the city. And it was, became a little bit of a tradition with us. And I remember one year, the last year we did it, no, sorry, the second last year we did it and neither one of us had a good time. Because we didn't do it with each other, we did it with other people for whatever reason. I can't remember why. And we didn't even realize how I guess we'd fallen into a routine. I say that as in we do it after work, like it was always after work from that standpoint. And she was the one who would make our schedule, and she was phenomenal at that. And she'd be able to get us to, she'd be able to say, We're going to hit three or four pavilions tonight, (laughs) we're going to travel the world, and this is how we're doing it.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: And, you know, we're going to eat at this one. We're going to watch the show at this one. We always made the shows at all of them. But no. then I was the one who would get us there from the standpoint of TTC. Like, we'll take this bus, this subway, yeah. and it worked. It was team. And so I went one year with a different friend um, the second last year. She went one year with a different friend, and it didn't work. We were missing the shows. We were missing the food. We only hit one or two. And we talked about it afterwards. We realized that we were just such a good team at this because she was a scheduler. I was the transportation person, and it worked yeah and so the next year we did it again and we brought those other people with us and we're like this is how you do it and we hit four so we'd often hit the bulk of the pavilions and so we were exposed and learned a lot about different cultures at an earlier age I would say Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and that was one thing I'd say for me at least that really just opened my mind to different ways and different ways of thinking or whatnot but again when I say that as in I don't believe I was necessarily conscious about it. It just, yeah. I was just starting to think that way. Well, and great. then I'd say in terms of being conscious about it, I'd say it would probably be within the past 15 years. So, so, so tell
2: me about, I, I, you know, when I'm, I'm doing some research about your, uh, on your profile, I came across Breakfast Culture. So yes. can, you, can you tell me about what, what's Breakfast Culture and
1: where did that come from? So Breakfast Culture is my, um, my consultancy. Um, Breakfast Culture works where marketing communications intersects with diversity, equity, and inclusion. So we do that on two fronts with external communications in terms of helping organizations uh, increase their revenues by cultivating new and different and diverse audiences. So how can we get messages out there from a marketing perspective and a marketing lens that will resonate with audience A, audience B, audience Z, for example, um, but it's still very inclusive and speaks to the authenticity of your brand or your product. Nice. Okay. So that's number one, and we yeah. do that through what we call woke marketing. And I can get into the three Bs of woke marketing: um, be authentic, be present, be prepared. Or the three Bs of woke marketing. That's my little soundbite for that. Yeah. And then on the other side, what I found was a lot of organizations I'm working with are saying, you know what, you've really helped us from a marketing standpoint. We also realize we need to do work internally. I was just
2: about to say, isn't there internal gaps?
1: So I do a lot of change management work to help cultivate more diverse, um, but more importantly, more inclusive workplace cultures. The name Breakfast Culture came from the Peter Drucker quote, um, culture eats strategy for breakfast. The second part of that quote apparently is, and culture eats technology for lunch. Oh. so. I'm working on a bit of an offshoot. Nice. And I'm going to call it breakfast for lunch, where we take the breakfast culture concept and we start looking at technology companies in right. the technology space.
2: You said you're doing a lot of work for, you know, I guess diversity and inclusion internally now. Like that seems to be the, the lens and the, the, the movement. There's a wave going there.
1: Yeah, I do a bit of, I do a bit of both.
2: Do a bit of both. Okay, great. Um, I'm I'm concerned, actually, maybe on both spectrums, on both the marketing end and on the internal uh, diversity and inclusion uh, end,
1: you know, is there a burden of representation that you carry? So one of the reasons why I started Breakfast Culture, frankly, and I apologize in advance because we are going to take the scenic route. Yeah, that's fine. I spent the bulk of my career, my 17, 18 plus year career Doing a lot of public relations, marketing communications work, primarily external communication. So changing perceptions, um, brand positioning, branding, cultivating a right sales environment to increase sales for my clients.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I reckon or I realized that I hit a glass ceiling. because so I was looking to move up in the PR industry and I would not see anyone who looked like you or looked like me in senior level roles. Uh, I kept being told well we 're looking for someone with more of a proven track record. Mm. you know all the different codes well you 're not quite the right fit for mm. our organization or what have you. All the nice codes to basically say well you 're not you don 't look like us, so yeah. you 're not going to be part of our organization and I got sick and tired of it, frankly, and like most people who work, I find in the d n i space, the diversity, equity, and inclusion space, we are often. Black, frankly, or racialized, if you will, Black, Brown, what have you, often women or often on the LGBTQ plus spectrum.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: for most of us, again, broad brushstrokes here, but for most of us, it's because we saw and recognized there was an issue and we were trying to help solve that issue. I mean, my goal ultimately is to be out of a job mm-hmm. in terms of, so someone else, that next generation coming up. here's a great example. My niece, she's, you know, she's 19 now. She just got accepted um, into her second year um, biomedical engineering at the University of Victoria. Wow. I'm so proud of her.
2: Yeah, that's amazing. This
1: child is so smart. Sorry. This young woman, I should say, is so smart. Yeah. I said to her, make best friends with a lawyer, someone who's doing patent <laughs> off, because mark my word, she is going to have a number of patents and inventions under her name fantastic and already because she went to john polly annie as a um more of a technical school and forget race at this point in her program as a teenager as a high school student there was maybe like she said just maybe like three or four other girls number yeah. one so she's already that. battling the sexism
2: yeah
1: Layer on that issues of race she's also biracial she's part black part asian yeah. so layer on that aspect and i mean I can get into that. That's a whole other discussion as well. But where I'm going with this is that's one of the reasons why I did found Breakfast Culture. I didn't want other people to have to go through what I went through. Yeah. I don't want people to have to go through that. I wouldn't want anyone else. It's just, it's not pleasant.
2: Um, listen, I only have a few more minutes with you, but I need to ask about the hashtag Black and Brilliant. So can okay. you tell us about that and maybe what, project that that is, uh, what projects are coming up for you, if, if you're able to share any?
1: Sure. I saw the post initially um, from a man by the name of um, Tony Ethick. He's originally from Nigeria, I believe, but he works in New York right now with um, NBC Universal. He had a post um, on LinkedIn called hashtag Black and Brilliant that talked about, um, you know, a lot of times corporations have been saying during this whole movement that there aren't enough black people's. Um, qualified black peoples, if you will, in the mm-hmm. talent pipeline, that's why they're not, in our organizations I Um, yeah. That's a myth. Mm-hmm. Um, well, frankly, that's bullshit. I'm just gonna come out and say it. Um, <laughs> as there are. Yeah. And so he talked about that and he was saying, and that he's based in the US and he was saying, I'm gonna, you know, steal this from black Twitter. Apparently this was something that started on black Twitter. And he said, you know what? I'm gonna tag a few people here. Please feel free to add. Uh, that took off for him. And I believe he's received over 100,000 views in the U.S. Wow. I was actually personally tagged in that post by a colleague of mine. I saw it. I read it. I loved it. Yeah. So I took it and brought it into Canada. And I posted on my own LinkedIn, um, crediting him, of course, uh, one of the excuses organizations cite when a mirror is held up to their board of directors or their management teams around diversity and inclusion is a lack of black talent. This is simply not true. There are so many people who are both black and brilliant. Let's kill this excuse. I'm taking a page from Tony Efek and black Twitter. Tag someone who is black and brilliant. This is not an exhaustive list. Just to start, please keep it going. Let's break some eggs, my hashtag. Um, God, I put that up about one month ago. I tagged about 20 of my colleagues who I know are hashtag black and brilliant. And it just took off. I mean, yeah. right now I'm over sixty-one thousand views. Um, just shy of a thousand comments, so nine hundred and seventy-eight comments, about seven hundred and forty-six uh reactions.
2: Yeah, it's a it's really it's a great initiative, and I'm glad that both both of you uh gentlemen put it out there, you know, both in states and on your profiles because it's someone did...
1: in the UK who did it as well,
2: and it's taken oh. off too. Even it's even better, right? Because it's one of those interesting things. And I and if you get a chance to, I'm I'm talking to you, the audience here. If you get a chance to go on to Jefferson's profile and see that tag a bunch of people that you know as well, and uh, to read through the thread, it's kind of I mean not maybe not all thousand <laughs> some odd comments because uh, that'll be a commitment, but read through uh, parts of that thread and it is really inspiring and nice to see, as you say that um, de- debunking that myth or, or you know, getting rid of that bullshit and saying, hey, the pipeline is rich, it's healthy, and look
1: at all these people. Exactly. Yeah. More importantly, though, um, also check out um, Bitly Black and Brilliant. We've set up an actual online database now. Um, so myself and another gentleman, we're sort of the geographical Michael Lewis. We are the geographical leads, if you will, for um, Canada for this movement um we've set up a database as well hashtag black and brilliant as part of that that we'll be using for you know just resources and whatnot um, we're also looking at potentially doing a survey um, with the industry so make sure you register there um, i'm also a partner in um, a new uh, venture launched by jason murray as part of west hall's black north initiative called bipoc executive search inc i'm um, right. a part in that group so that's another Um, aspect that's more looking at from a Canadian standpoint. Um, They want to have um, the goal for the Black North Initiative is, please don't quote me on this number, I want to say it's 3.5%, if I remember correctly, representation of Black peoples especially, but also Indigenous and people of colour in terms of their respective population groups in Canada. We want to make sure that the boards, Mm -hmm. the management teams, the senior leadership teams of corporations right across Canada are truly reflective of the actual population of Canada. funny, like the other day I was having a chat with a good friend of mine, he's Irish. And he was talking about how, from historically, what the English have done to the Irish, and how a lot of Irish people are like, well, we'll say like he got into a very, discussion with an Irish person, an older Irish gentleman, he was saying, he was saying, well, the Irish have received this, these, um, this oppression and this oppression from the English and the whole bit, you know, we've been more oppressed than black people have been or what have you. Mm. And, and he said, so if, what is it, I'm trying to remember, where you, I don't want to quote him, so I'm not going to go further on that, but what I was saying to him, and it's funny because where he was going with this is, this person kind of felt that, well, you know, black people you know, shouldn't be complaining or whatever because Irish people have been, you know, so persecuted well and oppressed. And what we end up talking about and what was impressed me about him in particular is um, was saying and then but do you see how that race is a construct is in when all of these concepts were coming out like let's face it irish was not included in that italian wasn't included in that. greek wasn't included in that um you speak to a lot of greek people today as i understand again broad brushstrokes they don't necessarily view themselves as quote unquote white if you will when all of that was coming you know in the founding fathers if you want again i'm looking at turtle island right now and very american standpoint when they were frankly creating the system they realized that oh we need to bring in the irish we need to bring in the italian we need to bring in these other basically non-anglo groups or non-english groups if you will for the system to work yeah and hence race being a construct right right and which kind of goes full circle to your first question around identity am i canadian am i bermudian and here's the thing. I mean, there are there are black Europeans, there are black Canadians, there are white Africans, like there are, I mean I have a lot of good friends who are Jamaican Chinese, like yeah. That's what I find fascinating about identity politics.
0: So there you have it. The conversation continues. I'd like to thank everyone who's participated in today's show, be they behind the scenes or on the mic. Part of our show was recorded and produced at Corner Studios with the assistance of our producer, John Kitt. Music for this episode was composed, played, and enjoyed with permission by Joachim Nortebert and Andy Ninval. If you like what you've heard, there's more. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter under our handle, crowd54. Remember, you can find us wherever you do your listening. iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and that's just a few of them. Listen, like, share. Until we meet again.
1: Thanks for listening.